One of the blessings that I was counting as singing that song was just to be among you here this morning. There's not another place I would rather be or a group of people I'd rather be with than my brothers and sisters here at Foothill Bible Church. God bless you. And wow, it's a privilege to be here among you and to stand in front of you and to open the Word of God with you. Growing up as a father and raising four children, there's a verse in Colossians, Colossians 3 and verse 21, that continually haunted me. Fathers, do not exasperate your children lest they lose heart. That verse always was peeking over my shoulder in the process of trying to raise four children. I don't know. There's just something about being a father that, that lends one towards that distinct possibility of exasperating our children. I think it comes from an earnest desire to see our children live a godly life. We really want them to be the best they can be for God. We don't, we don't want them to, to go through the same mistakes that we have made, the same foolish decisions, to bear the same consequences. And, and so I think it, it's out of an honest desire and appeal to, to godliness that, that causes us to be critical sometimes. To to just focus on the behavior of godliness and forget about both the heart motivation underneath it and maybe even more importantly to instruct them in how to achieve the behavior that we're exhorting them toward. Initially, they, they want to please us and so out of a heart's desire, they try. Then later, it may be out of a desire to avoid negative consequences but I think it's quite possible and, in fact, happens with some regularity that they're, they're trying to live for Christ in the flesh by the power of the natural man. And if that's true, they're doomed to failure. They just can't do it. And thinking about that, raising of children and, and that possibility for fathers to, to exasperate their children and, and cause them to lose heart. It makes me think about shepherding the flock of God and how in the same way exhortation to walk in godliness that's not accompanied by instruction as to how to do that can lead people into great frustration. They know what they're supposed to do and, and they try in the flesh to do it and, and they fail. Time and time again, they, they fall, they fail. They don't live up to their best desires and aspirations. And, and they grow frustrated and disheartened in the process. Have you ever experienced that in your life? I have. I think it's... I think it's a universal experience of the Christian. We have before us this morning one of the most powerful sections of Scripture that I can think of. Open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at just verses 1 and 2 this morning. 
If you're using a pew Bible, page 1136, 1136. The power of these two verses that the Apostle Paul has penned for us here in Romans chapter 12 cannot be underestimated. I've entitled this message, The Transformed Life. And, and isn't that what we want to live, a transformed life for Jesus Christ? Aren't you tired of messing up? I am. The answer is here for us. If we will but take it and apply it to our lives. It's not just exhortation to live for Christ. There's something more. And Paul gives it to us right here in these two verses. Really, this section of Scripture is, is the doorway that opens into the transformed Christian life. And there are four keys necessary to open that door. And I want to share those keys with you this morning. The door requires all four keys in order to open. Think of it like a safety deposit box on steroids. When you go to a safety deposit box, there are two keys required to open the box. Isn't that true? The bank has one key and you have the other. And if the bank sticks their key in and turns in and you don't put your key in, the box doesn't open. And if you put your key in and turn it and the bank doesn't put their key in, the box doesn't open. It requires both keys inserted and turned. It's a security measure. Well, this passage before us this morning contains four keys and all four have to be inserted and turned for the lock to open. And when it does, the door opens wide and with it, the rest of the epistle opens. All of the ethical imperatives, all of the, the commands to obedience that will, Paul will lay out for us in the rest of the book of Romans, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 12, all the way through chapter 15 and verse 13, all resolve themselves back here in this doorway. If we do not go through the doorway, the rest of the book will do nothing but frustrate us and discourage us and place us under condemnation. Because we will be trying to live a transformed life in the power of our own flesh. But when we insert these four divine keys, click, 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 click. The lock open, the door flies open, and the Christian life opens up. Now, I know I'm promising a lot. But I'm not promising you anything that God hasn't made available to me and to you. Let me read the text for you this morning. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
four spirit, Holy Spirit empowered keys that unlock the transformed life. And they're right here for us in this text. And you know, this is so important. This is so important to the Christian life that throughout the rest of the epistle to the Romans, we're going to continue to loop back here and remind ourselves of what Paul has given to us. This is the doorway. This is the gateway. This is the entrance into the rest of the epistle. And if we forget that a few weeks from now, a couple of months from now, as we're talking about some of the requirements of godliness that Paul is going to lay out some very lofty and some very difficult requirements, in fact, impossible requirements without the Spirit's work in and through us, we're going to remind ourselves, wait a minute, we've got to go back to the door. If we don't come through the door, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. So it all begins here. It all begins here. There is a, a major transition here in this epistle. For the first 11 chapters, Paul has been talking doctrine, 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 right? Well, he's going to turn right here. There's a hinge here in the book. He moves from doctrine to duty. What does it mean to live as a Christian? And he begins here in this doorway. This doorway. Four Holy Spirit-empowered keys to unlock the transformed life. You ready? Let's take a look at them. The first is that we have to remember something. The first key is to remember. Remember the mercies of God. Key number one. Remember the mercies of God. Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren. He begins here with a passionate desire to see them live for Jesus Christ. I urge you, he says, there's more here than just a a sense of earnestness, though. It goes beyond that to a, a statement of apostolic authority. It's more than just me urging you. It's the apostle Paul urging you right now, brethren, to do something. Remember chapter divisions? They're a later addition, right, to the word of God. Verse Numbers are a later addition to the word of God. When this was written and read in the church at Rome, there was no break between chapter 11 and chapter 12 as we know it. Chapter 11, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. I urge you, therefore, brethren, he says. I urge you, therefore, brethren. I mean, if everything really is from God, through God and true and to God, then then that puts us as believers under an obligation to obey, doesn't it? We're under an obligation here. Notice the word therefore. I urge you, therefore, brethren. When we see the word therefore in the scripture, we ask ourselves, why is it therefore, right? What is it telling us? What is it doing? What is it What is its function in the sentence? And it's to point us back. It points us back to what has already been written. What has already been written. And what Paul is saying here, by 
when he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, is that Christian ethics, that which is going to follow, are theologically motivated. Theologically motivated. That is, a Christian's obligation to obey is, is his response to what Christ has done for him. It's a sense of our gratitude to what Christ has done for us, and it is the source of our power to live an obedient life. I urge you, therefore, brethren, or some translations, therefore, I urge you, brethren. You could put the particle in either place in the sentence. Maybe it's more understandable that way if we begin it. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, therefore. It's pointing backwards to what has come before this. Many religions have an ethical code. That is a, a code of conduct, a code of ethics, a, a way that their followers are supposed to behave. And, and some of them are pretty lofty. There's no question about it. But no religious code of ethics except one, that is Christianity, is rooted and grounded in a supernatural event. It is the incarnation, it is the death, it is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that creates the theological necessity and empowerment for Christian ethics. All that God requires of you and all that God requires of me is based upon what God has first done in me through Jesus Christ. Christianity has ultimate moral authority because it is rooted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It also has effective spiritual power to enable the followers of Christ to live at a level that God requires them to live. We can live for Christ, beloved. The ethical commands of the New Testament are not just designed to frustrate us. To put us under condemnation, to, to ratchet up the guilt level, to make us hang our head, to go home feeling, oh, woe is me. There was another sermon and, and more that I'm supposed to do, and I can't even do what I was supposed to do last week. That's not Christianity. Christianity contains not just the what we must do, but the power to do it. The power to do it. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Do you see it? By the mercies of God. The mercies of God. Where has Paul talked about the mercies of God? Let me give you a clue. It begins in chapter 1. It begins in chapter 1 and it actually runs all the way through the end of chapter 11. The mercies of God. You know, you remember that. Wicked Sinners held in bondage and captivity to their own depravity, unable and unwilling to do anything to please a holy God. Do you remember that? And you remember, while still helpless at the right time, God sent forth his own son to die in their place, to take upon himself the innocent one, the pure one, the holy one, to take upon him the rightful wrath of God for the transgression of his people. You remember that. You also remember that death could not hold the righteous one, right? 
that he was raised from the dead on the third day, that the power of God would be demonstrated in and through him, a power that is available to all who will by faith embrace the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Power so strong, so potent, that Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that you are no longer a slave of your lust and your sin. That you no longer must obey its power. It has been broken by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul further goes on to say, and lest you be wise in your own eyes and somehow think that, yes, I saw the truth of this. I realized the reality of it all and I embraced it. Oh, good thing that I did. Paul says, you fool. You fool. God chose you. God chose you. You didn't choose him. You hated him. And he reached out and he chose you first. That he might lavish his grace upon you. Beyond that, we live in a messed up world. It's upside down. Righteousness does not prevail. Wickedness prevails, but it's not always going to be that way. Christ is returning again. And when he returns, he will establish his kingdom and righteousness and justice. He will overthrow wickedness. Righteousness will prevail. It will be like the waters covering the ocean, the prophet says. Remember all those mercies of God? We spent almost three years talking about them. And unbelievably, we reviewed them last week in one sermon. That was an 84 to 1 compression ratio, by the way. The mercies of God. Look again at this verse. Therefore... Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. The mercies of God. I say the first key here is to remember. It is to remember. And the reason I say it's to remember is because you and I are prone to forget. You and I are prone to forget the mercies of God. It's kind of like me and my father's birthday. I don't totally forget my father's birthday. If you were to ask me, I could I could tell you month and day in which he was born most of the time. The year I would get 50 percent of the time. It's like me and my father's birthday. I don't completely forget it, but it's just not on my mind. It doesn't occupy my thinking. It's it's in the back of my head somewhere. It's something I know and I filed away. The Lord's given me a great wife who reminds me every year. Call your dad. It's his birthday. Yeah, you're right. I remember that. So I don't totally forget it, but it's just not there on a regular basis. You know what? The gospel is the same way. The mercies of God are the same way. I don't completely forget them. They don't go out of my mind. It's not that I can't recall them. If you ask me, I can. And and so can you. But you don't remember them all the time. They're not first and foremost in your thinking on a regular basis. You get overwhelmed by the pressures of life. Well, the have-tos and gotta-dos, right? By the boss at work who's crabbing at you, by the problems at home, by the economy, by whatever it is, interpersonal relationships, problems there, all of that, it, it overwhelms you and you forget the gospel. Paul says, therefore, brethren, I urge you. 
by the mercies of God. You need to remember the mercies of God. You need to remember them. You need to be constantly reminded of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Isn't that right? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. We need to be reminded of this great gospel. One of the best ways to be reminded of it is to participate in the life of the church. Church participation is designed to reinforce and to help us remember the mercies of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of the Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 and 25. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Beloved, I need you. I need you. That's one of the reasons why when we were singing that song, and and one of the things that was going through my mind is how thankful I am for you. Because I need you. I need you to remind me of the mercies of God. And you need me. To remind you, we need each other. Part of a body here together. We meet together in order to remember, to remind, to stimulate our thinking. Because we're prone to, to forget. We're prone to forget. The first key. The first key to unlocking the door of a transformed life is to remember the mercies of God. Beloved, preach The gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. If you're not sure what that means or how to go about it, I commend our bookstore to you. Go to our bookstore and pick up what's called the gospel primer. It's a thin little paperback. Author Milton Vincent. Pick up the gospel primer and read it. Make it part of your devotions in the morning until the gospel becomes so familiar to you. That you're constantly mindful of it. Constantly remembering it. It's the first key to unlocking that door. Second key to put in the lock and to turn. Is that we must relinquish ourselves to God. You must relinquish yourself to God. Remember the mercies of God, number one. Number two, relinquish yourself to God. Verse one again. Therefore, I urge you, brethren... By the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. When we remember what God in Christ has done for us and in us, we recognize that we are no longer our own property. We do not have ownership rights over ourselves any longer. The Christian life is not about our rights. It is about our responsibilities. I'm going to say it again. The Christian life is not about our rights. It is about our responsibilities. The Apostle Paul is exceedingly clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Romans chapter 6, verse 18, you are a slave of righteousness. You have no rights. You have only 
Christian responsibilities. Drill it into your head. You have no rights. You have no rights. You have no rights. Did you get it? None. Not one. And you have a plethora of responsibilities. A plethora of responsibilities. Present your bodies, Paul says here, verse 1. Present your bodies. He's speaking here about a ritual offering, the offering of a sacrifice. It conjures up all kinds of Old Testament imagery here. When a sacrificial victim was presented to God, all rights were relinquished with regard to the sacrifice. When it was offered to God... They didn't take a knife and cut off a little piece to keep back for themselves and give the rest to God, right? It was all given to God. Now, God might choose to share a piece of it with them in a fellowship meal, but it was all given to him. And that is most clearly illustrated in the burnt offering. In the burnt offering. The victim was placed upon the altar. The fire was stoked and it was incinerated. It was consumed in the sacrifice to God. The reason God did that? Why did God have it consumed in fire? In order to impress upon the offerer that this sacrifice belongs entirely to him. Entirely to him. I wondered, only for a moment, what would happen if when we collected the offering plates, if we brought them down front and got out a A Zippo lighter. What do you think? I think I'd be looking for a new church next week. (laughs) But you know, if we're really putting it into the plate as an offering to God, we've relinquished all control over it, haven't we? Listen to me. As New Testament believers, we don't offer animals to God anymore, do we? I didn't see anybody coming in here with a lamb slung over their shoulder. Paul calls us here to offer, look at it, to present your what? Bodies, a living and holy sacrifice. Not just the flesh and bone, but the totality of yourself. All of us, all of you presented to God. This is amazing. God does not demand a gift from us. God demands the giver. The giver. He wants all of you. He demands all of you. Living and see it? Holy sacrifice. Holy sacrifice. Holiness speaks of being set apart to God. Speaks of being set apart to Him. But it also includes an ethical component. That is, separation from sin. So separate from sin and set apart to God, a a holy sacrifice. That's who we are to be. That's what God requires. I mean, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial animal couldn't have any blemishes. Isn't that right? You can't just bring any old thing you want. Why not just offer a dead dog? Because God requires an unblemished sacrifice. That's true of me, beloved. That's true of you. You are to be a holy sacrifice. What does that mean? Oh, and it's, well, simple and obvious 
explanation, it means that our lives should not be characterized by obvious blemishes of continual unconfessed sin. If it means anything, it means that. That there should be a striving against sin. We should not grow complacent with it. We should not grow comfortable with it. We should not say, oh, well, that's just the way I am. No. No. You need to remember the mercies of God because there's power in remembering. And after you remember, you need to relinquish. You need to relinquish yourself to God. Notice again, verse 1. It's a living sacrifice. You see that? Holy and living. Living points to the, to the idea here of an ongoing and voluntary nature of the sacrifice. This is something I want to do. Why do I want to do this? Because I remember what God has done in me and through me and for me. This is the kind of sacrifice God finds acceptable. By the way, acceptable sacrifice, acceptable worship, it's more than just a Sunday morning occurrence. You know, you do it at 1030, it carries over to noon unless the preacher goes too long, then it goes to about 1205. Done for the week. Sacrifice, worship, check, on to the next. No, we gather here, beloved, as an overflow of the week. What's been going on in your life all week long expresses itself corporately in overflow right here, right now. Living sacrifice. Living sacrifice. One preacher said the problem with our presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice is we keep climbing off the altar. Some truth to that, isn't there? Beloved, these things shouldn't be. They should not be. Paul says that to offer ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God is actually the logical thing to do. End of verse 1. Which is your spiritual service of worship. Spiritual service of worship. The word here is logikos. It's a Greek word. It's notoriously difficult to translate. The word can be translated spiritual or reasonable or rational. You look in a margin of a study Bible, you'll see those alternate translations. We actually get the English word logical from this Greek word here. A logical sacrifice. It is our reasonable service of worship. It is our rational service of worship. It is our spiritual service of worship. Our worship is to be logical, it's to be reasonable, not in as it is measured by human value and estimation, but when it is thought of in the sense that what God has done for us, the only reasonable, the only logical, the only consistent thing for us to do, that the truth of God revealed in Jesus Christ is to relinquish ourselves to him as a sacrifice. I prefer the translation rational to spiritual here. When you are experiencing interpersonal problems, and we all do, when you're having trouble at home getting along with your wife or your children, when you're having trouble at work getting along with your coworkers, when you're having trouble at school getting along with your teacher or your classmates, 
Wherever you are having trouble, here in the body, when you are having trouble getting along, interpersonal problems, they find their root cause in people's assertion of their own rights rather than their responsibilities. You want to know the quickest way to diffuse an argument at home with your wife? Start asserting your responsibilities toward her rather than your rights. First off, she will look at you with a very fuzzy look on her face and say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, honey, I'm, I'm just telling you these are the things that I'm supposed to be doing and, and I'm not doing, so will you forgive me? And by the grace of God, I'm going to try harder to do, to do these next time. She'll go, what? Who stole my husband? But that's not how we come at it, is it? We begin by asserting our, I have my rights. I know what you're supposed to be doing for me. And you're not doing it. So let me, let me tell you what you need to start doing to satisfy me. That really helps. <laughs> that really helps. Guaranteed. Got to be sweet in that house. I'll say it again. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have any rights. You have no rights. Read him his rights. You have no rights. You only have responsibilities. Only responsibilities. Relinquish yourself to God. Second key. Remember God's mercies. Relinquish yourself to God, third key, resist the world's corruption. Resist the world's corruption. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. The grammatical construction here indicates that this is probably a prohibition to stop something that is already going on. So this is not, most likely, grammatically, this is not a statement about don't begin something. This is most likely a statement about stop something that's already occurring. So uh, perhaps a better translation for this would be stop allowing yourself to be conformed. Stop allowing yourself to be conformed to this world. The word world here. The Greek word here behind world is it speaks of age or world order. The spirit of the age, the world order that is enlisted against God. Stop allowing yourself to be conformed by that which is absolutely diametrically opposed to God. Resist the world's corruption. Beloved, we spend our lives swimming in the ocean. And it is predictable that along the course of life, we're going to swallow some seawater. But we should not swim with our mouths open. We should not swim with our mouths open. Stop allowing yourself to be conformed to a world system that is openly hostile to God. Close your mouth. Close your mouth. You're getting too much seawater in. 
The world lies under the power of the evil one, yes? Isn't that true? Therefore, it cannot and it must not serve as the model of Christian living. It is not the place to go to get our ethics. It's not the place to go to get our values. And yet, so often, isn't that what happens when we're honest? Isn't that really frequently where we go? The values and the goals of this world are selfish and self-serving. They are absolutely antithetical to God. Selfish and self-serving. One of the ways that we allow ourselves to be conformed to this world is we drink out of its filthy wells. We drink out of its filthy wells. And probably no place is that more apparent than in the realm of entertainment. The realm of entertainment, beloved. Under the guise of entertainment, we will drink all kinds of rancid stew. In fact, all too often, listen to me, all too often our approach to entertainment choices, and I'm going to confess to you here, all too often my approach to entertainment choices has been to approach it as a pot of rancid stew and I need to get a strainer and pour it through. What I need to do is filter out the big chunks and I'll let the broth drain through and drink that. Hmm? So when it comes to a movie, what do we do? We look at the world rating system. Isn't that right? If it's rated this, oh, I could never go. That chunk's too big to go through my strainer. But if it's rated this, well, it's small enough. It'll fit through the screen. If I swallow fast, it'll go down. Listen to me. The whole stew, the whole stew is rancid. The whole stew is rancid. This is huge. This, this affects choices in music. This affects choices in movies. This affects choices in television. This affects choices in reading. This affects choices in video games. We are a generation that is in love with entertaining ourselves. And the world system against God, diametrically against God, is pouring out rancid stew by the gallon. And they're finding in us a very willing consumer. I didn't want to say all this. And the reason I didn't want to say all this is because it hurts. When you point one finger out, you've got three pointing back. Isn't that right? We've got to resist this stuff. We've got to resist it. Just filtering out the big chunks doesn't change the worldview that underlines and underlies the very rancid stew that so many of us willingly drink. Resist the world's corruption. You know, if giving up sin is a sacrifice to you, something's wrong with the way you're thinking. If giving up sin you see as a sacrifice for God, something's wrong with the way you're thinking. You have been pressed into the world's mold. You are thinking like a person devoid of the Spirit of God. We do this long enough. We ingest the world's filth long enough. 
It doesn't just disguise who we are. You listen to me now. It corrupts who we are. It corrupts us. It, it rots us from the inside. A few years ago, we had a, a water leak in our bathroom. It had been going on for a very, very long time, apparently. It was in the bottom of the shower. A little bit of water over a very long period of time. Drip, drip, drip. Down through the tile in the bottom of the shower pan. I didn't know that the water was dripping. Well, maybe I knew a little. Yeah, honestly, I knew a little. But I didn't want to deal with it. Okay, that's my honest confession. I didn't want to deal with it. All I could see was work, expense, whatever. So I'm going to put my fingers in my ears and I'm going to pretend that it's not really dripping and maybe the Lord will come first and rescue me. (laughs) He didn't come and I didn't get rescued. And beloved, a little bit at a time, a drip, a drip, a drip. Now I've got dry rot. I've got dry rot, not only in the, in the, in the flooring underneath the shower, but now all the way down into the floor joists. So by the time it finally has to be dealt with before I end up standing, you know, waist deep in my shower. My house is a raised house. The floor has to be turned up, the floor torn up, the floor joists cut out, everything redone from scratch. See, it just didn't disguise, it corroded. That's exactly what will happen to us. If we uncritically consume the garbage of a world system that is diametrically opposed to God, it will not disguise who you are. It will corrupt you and rot you from the inside out. Christians do not have blowouts. Christian lives do not blow out one day. Christian lives have a slow leak until one morning you go out to work and the tire's flat. That's usually when I get the phone call. Can you meet with us immediately? My wife's ready to leave me. What do you mean your wife's ready to leave you? Yeah, she says she's not gonna, she can't live with this anymore. She's out of here. Well, what led up to that? People don't just wake up one morning and walk. Drip, drip, drip. Slow corrosion. Resist. Resist the world's influence. It's corrupt. Let me give you an influence test. Here's an influence test for you. This is a way of self-diagnostic. How, how much of the world's influence am I really drinking? Ready? Here it is. If your calculations, if your plans, if your ambitions in life are determined by what falls within this earthly life, that is that if your desires, plans, ambitions, and goals do not extend beyond this life to the next, then you are a worldly man. You are a worldly woman. You have been captured by this world. If dollars are what drive you, you have been conformed to this world. 
If fame is the most important thing, if your reputation, if your power, if your comfort, if your happiness, if any and all of these things are what motivates you, get you up in the morning, then you can't see beyond the end of your feet. Why do you want a job? So I can make money. So I can buy things. So I can have stuff. So people can look at me and they can say, wow, that person, look at the clothes they wear, look at the car they drive, look at the house they're in. I want to be like them. Conform to this world. Conform to this world. Who is speaking into your life? Who is speaking into your life? What is speaking into your life? Who are you listening to? What are you listening to? Is it moving you towards Jesus Christ or is it moving you away? You need to ask that question. Resist the world's corruption. Fourth key. Fourth key. Renew your mind through the scriptures. Renew your mind. Remember the mercies of God. Relinquish yourself to God. Resist the world's corruption. Number four key opens the lock and throws the door wide open. Renew your mind through the scriptures. Do not be conformed to this world. Verse two. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you see it? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Literally, continue to allow yourself to be transformed. Present passive imperative. Continual action. Allow yourself to be transformed. Let me insert here, by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit of God. Allow Him to transform you. By the way, this is not something that happens just like that, right? This is a this is a lifelong process. A lifelong process. We live in this age, but we are not of this age. Because we now have within us the life of the age to come. The very Spirit of God. Holy Spirit of God. We are no longer helpless victims to sin. Isn't that the message of Romans 6? We are not helpless victims. God sent Christ who died to save us from our sin. Not just future, but here and now. We are indwelt by the very Holy Spirit of God. Who desires the things of God and motivates us and empowers us to pursue after them. Beloved, we live life based on habits. That's how I live. That's how you live. Based on habits. What do I mean by that? I mean, you don't get up every morning and set about making a whole series of intricate decisions about how you're going to get through your day. A good bit of how you get through your day, day in and day out, is by a habit. It's a behavior pattern that has been repeated over and over again until it becomes almost second nature to you. You get up in the morning, you go in the bathroom, you brush your teeth, you shave, you shower, you dress. I mean, all of that is habit. 
We just do it. And there are very many things that we do in life that we do out of habits. And you know what? That's a, that's a blessing of God. That's, that's common grace. If we weren't able to function by habit, can you imagine how paralyzed you would be if you had to stop and consider the alternatives and make every single decision along the way to wear black socks or blue socks? Well, I don't know. Black goes better with this. And, you know, man, you just open the drawer and you only have black socks in it anyway. And you just take them out. <laughs> I saw that problem years ago. And you buy the same kind, so you don't even have to worry about matching them. We live by habit. Isn't that right? We live by habit both good and bad. We live by habit both good and bad. What we need to do is we need to encourage the good habits and we need to root out the bad. We need to renew renew our mind. And root out these bad habits. We need to be transformed. Allow the Spirit to transform us. It's done by the renewing of your mind. You see it there, verse 2? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're not talking about the Spirit just zapping you into holiness. You can wait a very long time and it won't happen. So give up on that one. It is a long, arduous process. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. Allow the Spirit of God to cleanse your heart, to renew your mind through the Holy Scriptures, that which he has inspired. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 14. Don't turn there. You can go there on your own and look. There's a number of statements there about how the Word of God transforms a believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says there, as we behold the glory of the Lord in His Word, we are transformed into His likeness. God is changing you in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And the more you gaze upon Him in the Word of God, the more you become like Him. Our minds need to be reprogrammed so that we think differently. We establish good patterns and habits of life. Godly patterns, godly habits. It's a lifelong process. Lifelong process. And we are changed incrementally along the way. You cannot spend too much time reading the Word of God. There is not a one of us in this room that can overdo it. Not a one of us. But many of us are underdoing it in a very grave way. A lot of crud comes into our hearts and minds, doesn't it? Comes in through the ears, comes in through the eyes. A little children's song, be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? Be careful, little ears, what you hear. It's a cute little song, but it's so profound, it's so important. The human mind is like a piece of photography film. Once it sees an image, it's burned there and it stays. 
Once you've heard something, once you've done something, it's burned there. We've all done things, said things, seen things, been places where we ought not have gone. A good bit of it, perhaps, has happened before you came to Jesus Christ as your Savior. But I also know that for all of us, things have happened after that too. We've drunk some seawater, beloved. And once you've drunk it, it's there. It's in. The image is on your mind. It is never, ever, ever going to go away. It's not. I wish I could tell you it would. But it doesn't. So what do we do? Are we forever condemned to live defiled like that? No, there is an answer. There is an answer. Let me illustrate it to you this way. There's a glass of water. If I drop a few drops of poison in this water, and then I drink it, it's going to kill me. It's going to poison me. But if I were to drop the same few drops of water in my swimming pool with 50,000 gallons of water, it would no longer have the toxicity, toxicity level. Toxicity level. It's easy for you to say. Wouldn't be as poison. Is that right? Wouldn't be as poison. Be diluted. See, that's how the Scripture works. It's exactly how the Word of God works. What I have seen in my past, I can't undo. I can't go back there. It's done. The images in my mind are there. But I can keep them from dominating me. I can dilute their poisoned effect by taking in massive quantities of the Word of God until it flushes the poison to the place where it is no longer deadly to me. That's how it works. That's how it works. See, if you are not taking in massive doses of the Word of God, then the crud that you have swallowed from this world is going to overwhelm you. You have right before you rivers of living water. Drink. Drink. And keep drinking. You cannot read your Bible too much. You cannot. If you're struggling right now in this place, you're having trouble with, with sexual images that have come into your mind through, through behavioral sin in the past, maybe some of it you've been exposed to that it wasn't even your fault in the sense that someone else did it to you. I don't know. But if it's there and it's tormenting you, listen to me. The only way you're going to gain victory over this is if you pour in massive quantity of the pure milk of the Word and you dilute that crud. Then you'll have hope. And shut off the spigot at the other end. And don't keep taking it in. This is how it's done. Renew your mind through the Scriptures. Verse 2, that you may prove. That you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good, acceptable, perfect. Dokimadzo, it means to prove, to test. To approve is the result of testing. It's a metallurgical term. 
It's to, it's to figure out the purity of it all by testing it. It's to, to discover it. I like that definition. That you may discover what the will of God is. That which is good, acceptable, perfect. The will of God. Good in the sense of morally good. Acceptable, that is acceptable to God. Perfect, that is mature. By the way, where is the will of God that Paul is speaking of here? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's revealed beginning in verse 3, and it runs all the way through verse 13 of chapter 15. He is going to lay out for us the word of God, or excuse me, the will of God here in his word. It's very simple. The will of God for us is that we be humble. Chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. The will of God for us is that we be loving, chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. The word of God, the will of God for us is that we be submissive, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. The will of God for us is that we be pure, chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. The will of God for us is that we be deferential to one another in the body here, chapter 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 13. You know what? You cannot be humble, loving, submissive, pure, and deferential unless you go through the door of verses 1 and 2. If you try to come in some other way, you will be destined to failure. You will not make it. If you'll insert the keys, if you'll insert the keys, remember, relinquish, resist, and... Come on, speak to me. Renew, let's try it again. Remember, relinquish, resist, renew. Again, remember, relinquish, resist, renew. Do not forget. Do not forget. Paul's given us everything we need right here to live a transformed life. Everything we need. If we will, in dependence on the Spirit of God, insert the keys and turn them in the lock, the door will swing wide open. Will you put the keys in? Will you put the keys in? There's undoubtedly some here this morning for whom a good bit of what we've been talking about is right over the top. Pretty mysterious. You're not really sure what it is we're talking about. And the reason is, is because you haven't even begun the Christian life. You can't live a transformed Christian life when it hasn't even begun for you yet. Beloved, it begins by faith. It begins by calling out upon God to save you from your sin. A recognition a God-led recognition to the fact that you are lost, you are helpless, you are at enmity with God, you are hostile towards Him, and you are justly deserving of His condemnation. Believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sin. Believe that God raised Him from the dead on the third day where He could break the power of death and sin on your behalf. Believe and embrace that reality. Throw yourself onto the mercy of God and plead with Him for to save you in Jesus Christ. The Bible says He will. He will save you. 
His Holy Spirit will come within you and take up residence and you will begin upon the path of a transformed life. And then these four keys to remember, to relinquish, to resist and to renew will become applicable to you. And you, too, will know the joy of life as it was meant to be lived. It's available to you right now, right where you're sitting. I'm going to ask that everyone bow their head. Everyone bow their head. The Spirit of God has been speaking to you right now. Then you call out to Him right where you are, very quietly, in your seat. You call out to Him to save you. And then when we finish here, I want you to come down and talk to me. I want you to come and talk to me at the end of the service. I want to hear what God has done in you. Close your eyes and let's pray. Our God and our Father. Wow. You have given us an incredible gift here in these two verses. For you have laid bare before us, our Father, the key to life and godliness, to true happiness and spiritual prosperity. You have made available to us not only the way, but the power to walk in the way, to fight, to struggle, and to overcome sin in our own lives. To experience life as you intended to be transformed living. Oh Lord, may your Holy Spirit apply to us right now the truth that we have been studying this morning. Oh Lord, we confess our failures, we confess our weaknesses, we confess our hard heartedness, we confess our frustrations, we We confess our discouragement. We confess that for many of us, we've stopped trying even. And and Lord, even that we've begun to fake it. God forbid. Oh, Lord, do something powerful here among us even now. I beseech you as well to extend your, your grace and your mercy to those who do not know Jesus Christ. Who have no power to break sin. No power to say no to its cruel servitude. Lord, open their eyes, save their souls and set them on the path that they might too, they too might know a transformed life. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. God bless you, beloved.